Choke points. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. The state is finally breaking ground in a project to address one of the worst choke points in the region, that connection between I-90 and Highway 18 in snow. Kwame, work on the new interchange is about to begin, and Chris says it'll be one of those ones with a little bit of sparkle to it. Yeah, it's a diverging diamond. Diverging it's very diamond. Uh, very uh, sexy, if you want to know, yeah. having driven at the, the one down in Lacey. It's really nice, but anyway, congestion at this interchange has really become unbearable for people that are out there a lot. On some days, the backups can reach more than a mile because there's so much freight traffic now. Now going and getting off there and using 18 to get down to the valley and then over to the port of Tacoma. Uh, Trucks routinely roll over when they make that turn, turning onto Highway 18 too fast, coming down the hill. Uh, I mean, again, it does happen routinely. Uh, The current interchange just can't handle all the traffic that it uses every day. Here's project manager James Harper. The intent of this project is to help traffic flow, which will also help increase safety. This project will rebuild the entire interchange using the existing footprint of the current one, and it will be a diverging diamond, the second one in Washington. This is where the drivers use the opposite lane of traffic, eliminating the need for left turn lanes against oncoming traffic. It will also include more turning room for those trucks to make that transition. Harper says the project will also add lanes to Highway 18. In addition to the interchange, a key part of this project is is widening State Route 18 uh, to two lanes in each direction for two miles south of I-90. And that will all come with three new bridges. A new four-lane bridge structure at, at Deep Creek, a new four-lane bridge structure at Lake Creek, and a new two-lane bridge at Raging River. Uh, alongside the existing bridge. And some of the preliminary work is already underway, but Harper says the first thing drivers will notice? Drivers will see some tree clearing taking place uh, soon. There will be traffic shifts and temporary temporary barrier will uh, create work areas for the widening work and the, the work at the interchange. And there will be intermittent lane and shoulder closure, closures. Uh, throughout the project, mostly at night. All the trees that are being removed will be used to create new fish habitat around the multiple culverts that are being replaced and expanded in this project. And Harper says it should wrap up around 2025. We're always asking the public to to be patient through construction. Um, two years of a little bit of pain for we think what will be a lot of benefit at the end. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you listen closely... This project only widens Highway 18 for two miles. That's just going to create a choke point closer to the top of Tiger Mountain when it goes back down uh, to to one lane. So what's happening there? Adrian Hatmaker from WashDOT says that stretch isn't being abandoned. There is also another um, project planned uh, south of us to complete the widening of us right teen to Issaquah Hobart Road. That is expected to begin in 2025, just when the diverging diamond and widening project there is complete. Contractors are actually out this week digging test holes along Highway 18 for that uh, widening project down to Issy Hobart Road. The truck climbing lane on westbound 18 will be closed from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. daily this week. So eventually we will get two full lanes all the way from I-90 down to the Issaquah Hobart Road. Uh, so that will hopefully ease uh, what we have have there the daily problems uh, and also make things a lot more palatable around that intersection yeah. with I ninety. Wasn't that what's going to be the route of Highway six hundred five? Something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The you know the, the middle freeway that the that never got built. 
Uh, yeah. or something like that. Well, they're so. building it slowly, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Little little. Yeah, just ask the people who wanted <laughs> one six seven finished in the 80s. Yeah, uh, or, exactly. or, sorry, the 90s. So. Uh, on to the other transportation issue. Uh, looking to ramp up production coming out of the pandemic, Boeing is now opening a new 737 production lineup in Everett. Yeah, this is uh, pretty big news uh, that Boeing plans to be cranking out 737s in Everett in the second half of 2024, marking the first time that the single-aisle plane will be made outside of Renton. It's a way for the company to meet its production goals and use factory space in Everett, which is basically sitting somewhat idle. That's because Boeing is no longer making the 747. The final one leaves today out of Everett, or they're no longer making the 787 in Everett. Production space will now be dedicated to a fourth 737 line. John Holden is president of the Machinist Union. We have a lot of space in Everett. 747 production has ended, and 787 is now joint verification work. And it's also positive for our workforce in the north end. The Seattle Times reports that up to a 1,000 Renton workers have already been moved up to Everett to help with this transition. The workers in Everett who are already there will need to get up to speed quickly because they've been used to working on wide bodies like the 747 and the 787, which is much slower than putting together the 737. Remember at the height they were building eight 787s a month? Well, Boeing is currently producing 31 maxes a month, and they were making 52 a month before the pandemic in 2019. So that's a lot more airplanes and a wow. lot more faster work. So One a day rolling off? Pretty one. much, yeah. Wow. They were the, the, they ramped up to 52, and they wanted, I believe, to get up a little bit above that, too, as they were going. But Holden is confident that his workers will be up to the challenge. Our members are all over Puget Sound. They perform the same work. They, they can do anything. They've already done everything. So there's also a challenge of getting the parts to the Everett plant. Muckleteo residents should start preparing for seeing fuselages on trains along the waterfront because, of course, that's how the 737 fuselages get here from Wichita. You'd usually see them along I-90 going right into Renton, but now they're going to be going up along the Puget Sound, getting a nice view until you get up uh, to the spur there just uh, south of the new ferry terminal. Uh, Boeing deliveries have lagged well behind rival Airbus over the last couple of years after the two deadly MAX crashes and the production problems found with the 87. Uh, it's hoping that this fourth line will get it back up to speed. Yeah, and this is the final uh, 747 day, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Nicole Jennings, our reporter, is going to be up there today. Big pomp and circumstance. I mean, that's a huge deal. I mean, the 747 yeah. transformed flying for the entire world. I mean, because you could now get on something and make it I mean, distances you couldn't even consider back then. Uh, and yeah, the Queen of the Skies, just that great looking shape of that plane. It's a it's a legacy there in the Everett area. Yeah. And if you uh, before the big ceremony today, it's parked outside the plant today. So if you're driving along the Muckle to Speedway and want to cut over on five two six and take a look, it's just hanging out there right now. If you wanted to see the last forty seven seven forty seven before it takes off. I think I only flew I only flew it twice. Once in the business class upstairs, Ooh, fancy. and uh, and then once you know in the with the the rest of the cattle, um, but what a plane! Yeah, I mean, there's just no if you if you're on one of those long transoceanic trips. I, I think yeah, one of the one of the flights I took was in 1982 from Rome to Buenos Aires. It was like a 12 hours. Wow! And uh, and because we're covering the uh, the Falklands war at the time, so nobody wanted to go to Argentina. Whole plane, like twelve people. Wow! It was 
an amazing flight. You at that point, most you comfortable just, flight. You just lie out on the seat. Uh, yeah, the, you can go pull up all the uh, the, the armrests and lay across Take all five seats row. in the middle. <laughs> Excellent cabin service, by the way. Lots yeah. of leftover snacks. I think I only flew flew it once, going uh, uh, with a bunch of Notre Dame guys flying from uh, Minneapolis to L.A. to go watch uh, USC Notre Dame USC my sophomore year. I didn't think that thing was getting off the ground. I mean, it is so. I mean, you're like, man, it's so big, and it just lumbers and lumbers. And but boy, what a what an amazing aircraft! In Olympia, the state legislature is trying to decide what to do about our police pursuit laws, and the first step it looks like is going to be a study. Also, they're talking about eliminating restraining students at school and a measure that would compel you to vote. For all of these stories, let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Good morning, Matt. I say the best for you, last for you, Dave, because I know you like to talk yeah. about voting. Thank you. This is day 23 of a 105-day session. Again, we're talking about that pursuit because I'm bringing it up because it's such a key issue where you had bipartisan solution and then you had a key senator that basically said, no, we're not going to even hear the bill. So they're going to plan B. And it would create a model vehicle pursuit policy work group within the Criminal Justice Training Commission, basically a report that has to be back to the uh, lawmakers by Halloween 2024. And the bill's sponsor is the same... Uh, sponsor who created the bipartisan uh, bill that police liked, which would include uh, reasonable suspicion in the pursuit bill. Democratic State Senator John Lovick is the bill's uh, Plan B's uh, sponsor, and he admitted that he has some Arnold, Sch- Arnold Schwarzenegger in him when he talked about it. I was a sergeant with the state patrol for seven years, and I kind of say this not to brag, but I probably managed more pursuits than anybody alive or dead, and I mean that. And I would probably tell you that nine out of ten times, sometimes ten out of ten, I would say terminate the pursuit, and uh, I was called a terminator, which was okay. <laughs> yeah, there you okay. go. And then, but, you know, he was the one who proposed, like, like I said, that bipartisan bill that included reasonable suspicion. And then in this proposal, he also referenced that had a Rolling Stone reference because you just have to live with when you don't get what you want. Can't always get what you want in this business. And I think this is a, a process of maybe moving in a different direction. Hmm. Now, now, Lovick was also the sheriff of Snohomish County. And you had Derek Sanders. He's the new Thurston County Sheriff. And he has some firsthand knowledge of what the uh, pursuit bill working under as a deputy when he was patrolling the streets last year. And this is what he had to say. Three days into my job as sheriff, I pursued someone for DUI who passed by me and rolled his window down and stopped and said, I know you guys can't chase me stop chasing me and then sped off yeah you know i i gotta point out that he was uh that was a suspected dui driver and you are allowed to chase a suspected dui driver and represent uh, excuse me state senator monker who controls all the cards in this thing called him out on that and he admitted that he did pursue that driver Uh so um surprise yeah he also questioned though that the the summarizing um you know, and basically he summarized what a lot of the police officers and the lobbyist groups that represent police officers testified about this 18-month-long study. I do support the long-term goals of this bill. My concern, I'm not sure what I go back and tell my constituents and my deputies what we're going to do in the interim. And that's the big deal here. What are you going to do in the interim? And it doesn't. this study doesn't preclude a fix. 
but it may be what we're going to get this legislation. Well, what is it that they're trying to, to figure out? Are they looking for statistics or more discussion? I mean, either correct. You know, it's all about the data. The data yeah. that that uh, that showed that they're saving lives by not having a, a pursuit. The police engage in pursuits. That data is being questioned, and so it's all about getting better data to make a decision. Okay, the use of restraints in school, where does that issue stand? So this would prohibit students from being subjected to isolation, mechanical restraint, or chemical restraint by school staff, except for school resource officers under certain circumstances. And we're talking about getting rid of isolation rooms and leave them unlocked and not create any new isolation rooms. And it would require school districts to carry out trainings to deal with uh, problematic students. Uh, Representative Lisa Cowan is sponsoring the bill. We do have schools that are still practicing isolation with a room and a locked door, leaving a child by themselves at periods where they're at highly escalated states. We still do have students that are being zip-tied. And Representative Paul Harris, a Republican, is in favor of all this de-escalation training, but he pointed out something that had that was on the minds of a lot of people. Do we have so many shortages? Does, I guess I don't even know how we get there. How, how, how do we get uh, more people educated more? At what point do we, I don't know if we don't isolate, if we don't restrain, I, I guess my question is, what do we do with this child? Yeah, I've just got some serious questions as we move forward. And finally, Ashley Salazar actually testified about what happened to her daughter. On May 12th, 2022, my daughter's lunch helper at Woodridge Elementary put his hands on her and unlawfully restrained her in an effort to get her to do something that he wanted her to do in the lunchroom. He let go of her, and once he let go of her, she was found in a nearby restroom. She locked herself in the stall. She was in the fetal position on the ground, wailing, crying, and hyperventilating again. And she was in fourth grade. And she took her daughter out of school for the rest of the year and said that her daughter was contemplating suicide as a fourth grader nice. because of how they were treating her at school. Now, she didn't get into all the details of what the issues were, but that's a big debate right now. So this is actually the second time, Dave, that they've been tried to get rid of isolation rooms. And, you know, I even use the word... Um, I use the word uh, chemical restraint. Mm -hmm. and But what do you do if there's a student who is acting out? And, and sometimes, from what I hear, it can get pretty violent. You have to, at some point, protect the other students, don't you? Well, the, 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 the tactic now is to no, do what's known as a clear-out, where they remove all the students from the actual room and leave that student in there and have administrators deal with that student. And there was testimony that, you know, this is happening five, six, seven times so far this year. Uh, there are clear outs in classes in, in, in elementary school, especially in elementary school. So they're trying to deal with this, and they just don't want to have these restraints anymore. Um, I, I want to get back to the chemical restraint because people ask me, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? And I thought it was like pepper spray. No, this is actually there's certain medications that the school has some discretion depending on that particular student that to deliver to them and because the students the school has the discretion to give a medication to a certain student uh, they will give that to them they don't want that to happen anymore just to calm them down okay and on this mandatory voting issue that kind of surprised me how would that work 
Well, I mean, Sam Hunt is uh, proposing this now. Each registered voter must return a ballot in each primary and general election, and the voter is not required to select any candidates for office, but they must return the ballot, even if it's a blank ballot. But here's the catch. There's no penalty for failure to return a ballot, and if a person doesn't want to participate in voting, they would have to sign a waiver provide, without providing a reason why, but that waiver is permanent unless the that person... Asked to asked to be lifted, and I think the idea behind this is what's happening in other countries. The, like for Australia right now, they have an average ninety percent return rate on their ballots mm-hmm. because the the you have a fee. It's up to it can go up to one hundred eighty Australian dollars, which is approximately one hundred twenty seven U S dollars. Uh, so, but they have a high turnout rate. So there's no penalty right now that they're talking about. And there's uh, so that's what's being proposed. Okay, well, if there's no penalty, what's the point? I, I don't see that that would change behavior at all. And why is this coming up? This is, I mean, if you don't want to vote, don't vote. So what? I know. I, I don't know if it's maybe because they want to get a blank ballot back. You have to count the blank ballot that people. It's kind of registering how many people. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. You know, just they don't want to vote. They want to prove that they don't want to vote because they don't like any of the candidates. So you return a, a blank ballot, but you have to return the ballot. Okay. But you get no penalty. But if you don't, so, there's no penalty if you don't. So absolutely well, nothing I, will you change. Know, I'm not there to question. I, I, I just report it. You just report, as we as do we all. Matt Markovich, thank you. You're welcome. I'm just going to keep poking holes in your commentary until I feel better. That's your prerogative. <laughs> the Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. This is how I keep my head on straight. The Daily Dose of Kindness. Students at Coloma, Michigan Elementary School are spreading kindness. Teacher Kelsey Nimitz started the Kindness Club. I really just wanted to do something extra for the kids that didn't really have a group to be part of, um, but also give our students a chance to put that empathy and kindness in action. The kids are all given cards and they write positive notes and words of encouragement and they hand them out as needed. Kelsey tells WSBT that she sees a need in her young students to receive random acts of kindness, which can act as a needed pick-me-up on a bad day. And as we know, through the Daily Dose of Kindness, kids know exactly why kindness counts. So that um, kids at school um, don't... uh, that's so I feel a safe environment at school. The Kindness Club meets once a month to help students learn about empathy and positive impacts that kindness can have on others. And speaking of school, don't forget that the Grand Poobah of Kindness, CBS's Steve Hartman, he started a Facebook page called Kindness 101 where he puts all of his stories and lessons on what it takes to be kind. He is creating it because he wants it to be a resource for teachers to bring it into their classrooms. Seven forty nine, and now visiting us from the generous of the show, which starts at nine. Here is G Scott. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. So, you people, the Netflix movie. Oh, wait, wait, wait. When you say you people, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean by you mean? people? I'm not going to overcompensate like the uh, actors in this movie did. Okay. You tell me what you mean by it, and why you like the movie so much. Okay. I like the movie. I, I want to just say when I started it. I had no expectations of it. I was watching the movie because, A, Eddie Murphy's in it. I love Eddie Murphy. We all do. Yeah. And, B, Superbad 
is one of my favorite movies of all time. Jonah Hill. Jonah yeah. Hill. Yeah. Okay, hell yeah. I like Jonah Hill's mm-hmm. cadence mm-hmm. when it comes. I know that sounds a little nerdy, but I, I just like his comedic cadence, the way he does things. A little awkwardness. I like that. Now, I had no idea going into it that Lauren London was going to be the love interest of Jonah Hill. I, had, I mean, all everything else was surprising. All of the awkwardness and the cringe and the oh my goodness and the in your face about how awkward situations can happen. That was all a surprise to me when it comes to race, when it comes to race. Yeah. So for me, did I like it? Yeah, it was good. There were some thing elements about it that I like. Um, but B, it's going to be unfortunate because there's going to be a lot of people that will see this and will come away saying, oh, pshaw, there's that woke stuff again, because it's easier to just be like, yo, that's woke stuff. But this is a parody of woke stuff. I I, I know. I know. Yeah, but it's okay. easy to walk away with just that's it instead of some folks are uncomfortable mm-hmm. when they are faced with or excuse me. When they have a mirror in front of their face and they actually get to see in real time these things happen. I'll tell you the part that made me uncomfortable because I, too, went into. So it's a new Netflix movie. You yeah. people, in case we didn't say that. Yeah. But uh, I went into it just. Yeah. Oh, Jonah. Hill, oh, Louis. Right. Oh, Eddie Murphy. I haven't seen him in a while. You yeah. know, I was like, OK, you know, sat down with my husband. Let's watch a movie tonight. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> they're going to go there. <laughs> and usually I'm used to movies doing a more subtle script around race conversations, but this one was like, we don't have time for that. We just need to say these things out loud and show you how to talk about them in real time and show you how to move through the discomfort in real time. And of course, you know, as a white woman, I am supposed to relate to the white characters, right? And Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays the mother who now is about to have a black daughter-in-law and she's really trying, Mm -hmm. even though she's awkward and offensive in a lot of parts, not purposely offensive but offensive because she doesn't get it and there's this one part where they're at the rehearsal dinner and the actress who is going to be the daughter-in-law she's talking about her hair or something and so i was like oh gosh they're bringing up the hair right and she's like and that's a and she started using phrases related to black women's hair and i was like oh look at that like she was studying and looking at it she's like trying to relate and i thought okay this is the turning point for the character but then the actress who plays the she's like Stop. I am not a toy. And I was like, oh, that's the wrong thing to do is to study and try to relate and use those phrases. And that's when I related to the character is I can see myself doing that is going like, hey, I don't know anything about this. I'm going to study it and then I'm going to show you that I know this. Mm -hmm. But that's treating a black woman like a toy. And and so I just want to say that out loud, that I related to that character and that Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that was the wrong way to go about it. Here at um, Cairo, um, there used to be someone that used to work here. And every time, so there's a, it was a running thing where I would tell Chef about it all the time, too. Every time that this person would see, any time they wanted to talk to me about a topic, any time they wanted to come to me and they say something about something, it is always going to be centered around, you, you, you know where I'm going with this, a black topic. Ugh. They didn't talk to me about anything else. Oh, gee, man, did you did you hear about that story over in the Central District? Gee, man, did you hear about what happened down in Tacoma? It, it, it was ne- uh. never anything else other than a topic about something related and centered around black people. And the lesson in both of those is that you're only seeing blackness. You're not seeing 
me as a person. Right. And and it's like when the plane was stolen yeah. and my former boss said, gee, the next time you talk about the plane being stolen at SeaTac, oh, I, I would one. I would like for you to give your urban perspective. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yes, it's cringe, it, 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 which it was. And by the way. A, a part of me, Dave, and I want to see what you thought about it. Part of yeah. me, a part of me, Dave, feels like it was kind of like a whole bunch of improv going on during <laughs> the entire time. This is a plot that Hollywood treats from. It was like Meet the Parents, except set against the uh, with a racial background. Mm-hmm. They've done it with like uh, Sidney Poitier, Jewish Catholic. Well, that was guess who's coming to do that's that. right. That's right. That, that was a little more groundbreaking, I think, for the for the time. But there was that one where the, the where the father in law was like a CIA spy or something and checks out the son. Oh right. Did this happen? And the, basically, yeah. I mean, and 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 I did this when I first became a father in law. I was going to you know check out. The, you know the guys, but the, the difference here was that it was race. My my one question is: Did you buy the ending? Because the, the ending was terrible. <laughs> because suddenly all peace, love, harmony, and unicorns. I mean, come on, that was terrible. <laughs> Don't get it away. at nine o'clock. On Tuesdays, we go to Washington D.C. and New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold, watchdog. Especially when it comes to the United Nations. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, first, the developing story this morning is that Representative George Santos, if that is indeed his real name, is uh, temporarily recusing himself from his House committees. What finally brought that about, David? Well, we don't know for sure. I mean, there has been no public pressure from Kevin McCarthy, the new House Speaker, for George Santos to do anything. Um, But there has been some pressure from Long Island Republicans, where he's from. Uh, they want him to step down. And there seems to be multiplying uh, investigations of him. There's a federal investigation. Just last week, I believe, the Washington Post reported that the DOJ had told the Federal Election Commission, which is also looking into Santos, to stand by for now because there's a criminal investigation underway. Mm-hmm. So Santos may just be anticipating some sort of criminal charges. I don't think that indictment is very far away. So maybe this is just him soft, you know, getting ready for that. Yeah, the source of his money remains a mystery, correct? Like so many other things. I mean, just even it's just as an example, Miami Herald had a story today on like a little piece of Santos's uh, falsehoods, which is that he claimed to have spent a bunch of money and on parking and food in Miami. And that the people who run the parking and operate the diner said that that didn't happen. And that's, you know, the payments didn't make any sense. So even the smallest things on his campaign huh. finance reports seem to be wrong. So the big things are going to be the bigger problem. Now, uh, have you, I mean, following money is your specialty. That's what got you the Pulitzer Prize. So uh, are you about to be assigned to this story? You're allowed to say or not? I mean, I would love to. I, I think it's a fascinating tale. But our um, my my colleagues in New York broke this story and seem to be handling it very well. If they ever asked me, I would be there in a heartbeat. I'll bet you would. <laughs> uh, your latest piece is a follow up on that UN agency that we talked with you about last May, the United Nations Office of Project Services. I think it is. Yeah, this is. It was such a fun story, and there's been a new beat in it now. If your listeners recall. We wrote about this this obscure but very wealthy agency at the UN, which ended up with millions of dollars extra. Basically, they had a bunch bunch of money that they didn't know what to do with. And uh, in a surprising fashion, the leaders of this UN agency met a guy at a party, met a British guy at a party, and then just decided to give it all to him. They gave him and his daughter, uh, who was like 19, $61 million, uh, some of it to write a song about the oceans, others of it to invest in various projects around the world. It all seems to have gone very, very badly. Millions of dollars, at least $20 million, seems to have been 
to be gone for good. Uh, and so finally, the U.N., a year later, is firing um, one of the executives, U.N. executives, who is directly in charge of that program. There are reports of criminal investigations overseas in Denmark and Finland, where these offices are. Um, but nobody's been charged with anything. Yeah, this is this certainly plays into the uh, the narrative of people who think the UN is just a a big waste of money. Um, what did you learn in following this investigation? Is there a do they have a culture problem there? Are they do, do they just feel themselves to be uh, above uh, above the enforcement of the rules? What, what's driving this kind of scandal? I mean, it, look, the U.N. obviously does a lot of great work, and this office did a lot of great work. They built roads in the third world. They built hospitals. But this is what happens when you have no accountability. The people who run these agencies are literally accountable to no one, or they're accountable to a diffuse committee of nations, and which is almost the same as being accountable to no one. What we heard from people at the U.N. was in that culture, you know, the, the bosses – will goes. Nobody challenges them. There's no incentive to blow the whistle. There's no oversight from above. So the people who were in charge of these the agencies were like, little is ours. And even when they had a crazy idea, which is like, let's take all this money that was meant for doing good in, in the world and just invest it with this dude we met at a party, there was no one out there to step in and stop them until it was far too late. So it does seem to be a culture and an accountability problem there at the U.N. Okay, to the House of Representatives and uh, the first days of Republican rule. Uh, the uh, the fair tax proposal that there seems to be a debate uh, among Republicans as to whether they want to pursue that. I know it's been a long held dream, but would you explain it and tell me if it's going anywhere? Well, it, to me, it seems like a crazy thing to think to to push forward just as a messaging bill. Like, there's no chance of becoming a law. So why would you want to be this something that you you know a flag you raise to the American public? Basically, it's a way of eliminating income tax. Uh, and replacing it with the giant sales tax. I think it's like a 30% national yeah, 30% sales tax. Yeah, 30% national sales tax. Yeah, the idea being that, you know, it's unfair to tax income. It should only be, we should only be taxing what you buy. Um, you know, and it would also, you know, eliminate the IRS or make the IRS much smaller. Uh, it's crazy politically because, it, you know, who would want to vote for increasing your sales tax from 6 or 8% to 30%? Well, they say they will pay everybody a subsidy. They will reimburse poorer, lower incomes with a, with a federal subsidy. No questions asked. That's how they say it would work. But I feel like if you get into that, right, if you get into the question of who deserves this subsidy and how much you can get, you're basically back to the tax code we have, which is really complicated, has all kinds of different tests and requires thousands and thousands of people to administer you know, if you're going to if you're going to set up something where you, you're determining who's eligible for funneling the money back, you haven't made it that, that much less complicated. And you've made everybody pay on the front end in a, in a way that's much higher than now. It would make everything cost 25 percent more now than, than it does now. And this would include major purchases like like uh, buying a home. I think that's right. And they, and they, I guess the idea is that, you know, this is obviously attractive to the wealthy because, you know, they spend so much less of their money as a percentage than poor people do. Yeah. Uh, but I just can't imagine that anybody out there is fired up about that idea. That they would want, they would pay 30 percent more in, or you know 25 percent more in sales tax. On the whole uh, debt drama, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, has explained that all he wants is what they call a regular order, where the committees hash out budgets and for the 13 different departments, and, you know, you go through the approval process and you come up with a budget. That's all he's asking for. Just get back to regular order and stop passing just extensions of old budgets. So uh, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing in theory, and that's what literally every Congress says. We should get back to regular order. 
The problem is, A, that regular order takes a lot of time. And these budgets, usually, they, you know, in theory, they should pass like 12 or 13 budgets for different chunks of the government. Um, but they never do that because those budgets are so big and it requires so much time and nobody in Capitol Hill wants to spend the time hashing those things out. They want to be home campaigning. They want to be off calling donors. They want to be on Fox News. Nobody has the attention span to, to, to really deal with these budgets and minutia. And so what happens is then, you know, the, the time elapses and you get to a point where like, oh, my God, we got to pass something. And so then they just pass an extension of what they passed before. They pass what they call an omnibus, which is all the budget in one, just so the government doesn't shut down. I mean, I, I think people should applaud the idea that they would be doing that. But mm -hmm. I don't think that they've shown themselves. I mean, even look at the first two weeks of taking over. There were supposed to be 11 bills that they were going to pass. I think they've, they've passed six. So even their own messaging bills, they, they can't move fast enough on. The hmm. budgets are so much bigger than that. So those, the Republicans themselves have not attempted to return to, to regular order? I mean, they've attempted it, but it's really hard. And, and I think it's, you know, especially in a time when members spend so much less time in Washington, right? They, they usually are there Tuesday to Thursday, and then they're back home. Some weeks they're not here at all. You know, that's it's a that's a time consuming process for 435 people to go through that, in a, you know, in the way that it's theoretically supposed to be done. Mm. And I just don't think that they have the attention span or the time to do it. Jeez, but that's their job. All right. Anyway, in the time we have remaining, um, the Trump 2024 campaign, any updates so far, any uh, rallies scheduled, any outbursts on uh, Truth Social, any any supporters already, you know, throwing their lot in with Trump? Well, I've seen that he increases endorsements in the U.S. Senate from two to four. Um, so that's something. And I think everybody out there does believe that he's weak and that a Republican challenger could beat him. But so far, nobody's gotten into the race. Um, so people like Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley sort of made their careers sucking up the Trump have not really had the guts to challenge him directly. I do think Ron DeSantis will run against him, but we haven't seen that him jump into the race yet. Hmm. So he's still all alone. He's got the field to himself so far. Yeah, I mean, he's not doing a great job, and he's not campaigning very much, but he is the only one out there for now. David Farenthold, New York Times. David, thank you. Have a great week. You too. Eight forty-seven, Seattle's Morning News. Joining us now, Mickey Gomez, who wants to respond to Dr. Cohen's segment yesterday about Ozampic, the drug that was made for type two diabetes, but is finding an off-label use as uh, as a weight loss drug. Right, the Wigovi. Wigovi, right, mm -hmm. which is just the basically the higher dose version. Right, of Ozempic. right, right. And some insurances will approve Ozempic. If you are type 2 diabetic and we'll pay for it and you only have to do your little copay, which is nice. But then if you increase the dose and they find out you want to use it for weight loss, some insurances won't cover that. Why? Well, weight loss, they think, maybe <laughs> is vanity. It's vain. It's it's not necessary. It's health-related, though. It, it is health-related. Yeah. I, I heard the interview. And I thought the doctor made a lot of valid points, but I disagreed with him when he talked about, so you just need to, you know, you just need to exercise and you need to eat protein. Please. That's for me. That's that sounds like gaslighting. Huh. It really it really does. Yeah. Well, tell us your story. Though. OK, so my story is, is that when I turned a certain age, um, I couldn't lose weight anymore. Also, I, I I was working out. I was starving myself to to lose the weight and to look fit and to be great and feel great. But what ended up happening was that I wasn't losing any weight. 
And the cravings were coming in. They were roaring at me. And eventually I just gave up and started eating and eating and eating to the point where I gained 100 pounds. Wow. And it was unbelievable. I remember my trainers and my dietitians telling me, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're working out and that you're following this diet because you should be 20 pounds lighter than what you are right now. And you've Mm -hmm. only lost a pound. So what are you doing? Let's be honest. So I, I would just leave feeling mm. deflated. Did and you I keep said, a well, food diary? It. I did. I kept the food diary yeah. and I wasn't losing weight. Finally, I went to the doctor. We did an entire metabolic panel and we checked my insulin, my A1C, my thyroid, everything. And we found, aha, you are now a type 2 diabetic. You are insulin resistant. Mm. You also um, have uh, your thyroid numbers are off the charts. No wonder you're not losing weight. Mm. So I, um, I decided to have weight loss surgery. I was going to do the weight loss surgery. I, luckily, I, I, I barely made it. Uh, you know, I was big, but I wasn't big enough. So mm-hmm. the doctor said, gain a couple more pounds. And so then I they'll did. give you the surgery. Right. My and so goodness. I did. I did gain really? a couple more pounds and I did get, uh, I did get qualified. My insurance did approve it after a couple of appeals. And then a friend here at work said, you know, I'm trying this new thing and it's working and it's for type two diabetics. Mm. And so I said, oh, so I asked my doctor about it. It's called Manjaro. It's very similar to Ozempic. And uh, the difference is that it's a it's a GLP-1 GIP. So Manjaro and Ozempic have this glucagon in them that makes it a GLP-1. It's a GLP uh, glucagon-like peptide. Okay, and but the GIP in the Manjaro is what makes it a game but it affects, changer. It affects the brain, right? It affects the brain, yes, but it affects it in positive ways. My, what I'm saying is, it's not a thing that, that changes your metabolism in some way. It changes the urge to eat more. It does. Yeah. Um, my brain, I think the way my doctor, and I'm hoping I'm describing it correctly, the way my doctor has described it is that my brain wants me to be fat. Mm-hmm. My brain wants me to have the high cholesterol, the type 2 diabetes, because, and it wants me to eat the carbs. It wants me to eat the sugars. Yeah. The Manjaro stops all that. And I could tell a difference within two days of the injection. I take a once-weekly injection. I have lost um, over, as of this morning, 45 pounds since September 28th. Wow. And that feels like a really healthy timeline, too, for losing that amount so of weight. So it comes to almost 10 pounds a month. Yeah. And it has been it has been game It's been a game changer. And just FYI, I support women and men who want to take this medication, even if they're not type 2 diabetics, because they're on their way to becoming type 2 diabetics. Now, Dr. Cohen brought up the side effects, which sometimes included severe nausea. I will admit. Yes. In the beginning, that's why you're put on a very low dose, Dave. Uh Uh, You start with 2.5 milligrams or the slow, the smallest dose possible because as you, your body gets used to it. So yes, I can remember going, why am I feeling this way? Why am I putting myself through this for all this weight loss? And then the side effects went away. It reminds me of uh, when you talk about my brain is this way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you get that, well, just eat right and exercise and you'll lose weight. It didn't work for me. but But it's this whole concept that we think that our bodies and our brains are one size fits all, that what works for most works for everyone. Right. And it rem- your pill reminds me of why I started taking SSRIs, selective serotonin uptake inhibitors. My brain is not producing enough serotonin, which leads to depression. So it's the same thing with weight loss. There's no shame in it. Your right. brain just needs something a little extra. Right. And I'm losing the weight. And, and it is true. I, I do forget to eat. 
I, I do. Yesterday that happened because I was so busy. I, you didn't I, eat anything. I, I finally ate when I got home. I did drink a lot of water, and I thought, and I, my stomach was so full from yesterday yeah. or the day before. I, I thought that I had eaten throughout the day. Wow! And then I went, oh my god, who forgets to eat? Because I was never. Do you that still girl. keep the food diary. I still keep the food diary. It's you, uh, do, my do you, fitness plan. Do you, yep. com- do you compare your your old eating habits to your new ones? It's all in there. Dramatically I was different? I was eating about two thousand calories and working out, burning about fifteen hundred calories uh-huh. a day. Uh huh. And, and, and now, now? Uh, I eat anywhere between 900 and 1,000 calories a day. Wow. It, it feels like, and, and I know doctors difference. are going to say, uh, no, it's not. But it, I guess from what I was described or how I was told weight loss surgery would be for me is it's that you, it, it feels yeah. like it's gastric bypass in, a, in yeah. an injection. Yeah. Mm. And wow. now they're saying ozempic face, which I can come back and we can talk about ozempic, ozempic face. face? Yep. Ozempic face. What? Ozempic face. It's okay. where it, we'll it was. To, no, no, let's do yeah, part okay. two tomorrow. Okay. We've done we'll part, do part two with part Mickey. Two. Okay. Yeah. I want to hear more about this. Is fascinating. Mickey, yeah. thank you so much for sharing You're very a welcome. very personal story. And we'll have mm-hmm. to reposition the video camera, too. Oh. I'm guessing, right? Should we have Dr. Okay. Cohen join us, too? <laughs> I don't know if he's doing Battle Royale. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at mynorthwest.com.